very great pleasure uh, to introduce uh, somebody who is an honored friend and uh, esteemed, treasured uh, intellectual companion as well as a terrific scholar in David Kurtzer. Formerly provost at Brown University, David is now the Paul Dupay University Professor of Social Science and Professor of Anthropology and Italian Studies at Brown. Author of some 10 books and editor of others, Professor Kurtzer has written several important volumes on Italian politics, society, and history. And for, for those uh, books, he's twice received the Moraro Prize from the Society for Italian Historical Studies for the best work on Italian history. He's also written extensively on Catholicism and Judaism and on popes and anti-Semitism. His book, The Kidnapping of Edgardo Mortara, was a finalist for the National Book Award in 1997, a play based on the book, which I cannot recommend warmly enough, uh, was staged by a Pulitzer and Oscar award-winning playwright and has been performed uh, several times. And uh, there may even be a movie uh, made out of the book, from what I hear. Um, his 2001 book, The Popes Against the Jews, is an examination of the Vatican's role in the rise of modern anti-Semitism and has been published in 10 languages. David Kircher's latest or forthcoming book, The Pope and Mussolini, The Secret History of Pius XI and the Rise of Fascism in Europe, will be published this spring in the United States by Random House and in Italy by Risley. Using an unmatched wealth of newly available archival materials from the Vatican, it tells the dramatic story of the relation of two men who came to power, both in Rome in 1922, the dictator Mussolini and Pope Pius XI. Based partly on the researches he did for that book, Professor Kircher will address us today on the topic of the Vatican's role in the promulgation of Italy's 1938 racial laws. So on behalf of the Committee of Jewish Studies, which is co-sponsoring this event, and of HDS, please join me in welcoming David Kurtzer to Harvard. He just took my, uh, my text with me, so. Uh... <laughs> it's a test at Harvard. You're not allowed to use notes here. It's like, you know, heard something about a final exam. I don't know. Uh, I was going to thank Kevin, but uh, now no, I'm not so sure. Um, no, I, I'm very happy to be here and uh, thank uh, Kevin Madigan, whose work I very much admire for inviting me and for this opportunity. Uh, actually, the, the um, editor of the book isn't that happy about this talk because it comes, the, the book comes out at the end of January, so they hate for anybody to talk about a book that's coming out months later because then when it comes out, it sounds like old news. Uh, so don't tell anybody anything I say today, please. In the shadow of the Holocaust, attention has turned to the question of what, what could have led millions of Europeans, most of whom considered themselves to be Christians, to view Jews in such demonic, dehumanized terms that they would not only countenance, but actively participate in their mass murder. Given the small size of Italy's Jewish population. Uh, the number of Jews murdered was perhaps uh, 7,500. There were perhaps about 45,000 Italian Jews at the beginning of the war. Clearly, they're just almost a footnote to the Holocaust, a very small part of the carnage. Yet, if we're interested in examining the Vatican's role in the lead-up to the disaster to come, the Italian case offers something of a privileged vantage point. Nowhere in the two decades preceding the Holocaust did the Vatican have as much influence as it did in Italy? 
Aside from the obvious reasons for this, the Pope, of course, was Italian, the uh, entire Curia practically were all Italians, uh, and the deal that the, the Vatican had recently struck with the Italian government, uh, the famous Lateran Treaty of, of 1929, the, um, there was a, an understanding, a very close working relationship, as I'll, I'll try to indicate, between the two in a way that didn't exist, I think, in, in other countries, that is, between the government and the Vatican. <clears throat> What I'd like to do this afternoon, uh, and what I'd like to talk about is based on research uh, Kevin alluded to, uh, partly based on the fact that it was only in 2006 that the Vatican opened the archives for the papacy of Pius XI, 1922 to 1939. And I, along with a number of other uh, colleagues, when we heard that this was going to happen, got very excited and began planning projects, <clears throat> one of which will be this book that comes out. Now. Uh, in chronicling the role played by the Pope and the Vatican in the, in the promulgation of the racial laws, I'm going against a widely accepted narrative, certainly a narrative that's widely accepted within the church and I think within Italy, uh, which portrays a Vatican and a Pope who fought bravely against uh, the racism that Mussolini embraced in 1938 and opposed the racial laws. That narrative, while comforting, I think can't withstand historical scrutiny. Now, as Kevin mentioned, it happens that 1922 was the year that both the uh, Achilleratti became Pope, uh, replacing Benedict XV in February 1922, and then later that year, the famous march on uh, Rome in uh, late October led to the naming of Mussolini as the Prime Minister. You see him here in uh, popular news weekly right around the time he was appointed. At the time, Mussolini had no problem with Jews. His mistress and major political advisor was Margarita Sarfati, a Venetian Jew. I think I have a picture of her here with her husband, also from the Venetian Jewish community. It's a story I get into a little bit in the book, but will not this evening, so there may be some disappointment. Um, Jews were active in the fascist party, and some had high positions in the fascist government. Historians have hotly debated how it was and why it was that in 1938, Mussolini announces this racial, so-called racial uh, policy, this anti-Semitic uh, program. How did Mussolini come to believe that special laws were needed to be imposed on the Jews? In these debates over what led up to the imposition of the racial laws, the Vatican has received little attention. Yet I think no explanation of what happened is adequate without understanding the role it played. By far the most important source of anti-Semitism in Italy at the time that Mussolini came to power was the Roman Catholic Church. While the demonization of the Jews was widespread in the church, its single most influential source was the Vatican's supervised Jesuit journal, Civiltà Cattolica. The journal had quasi-official status. It was founded in 1850, uh, shortly after Pius IX returned from uh, his exile, returned to uh, Rome, and he is the one who basically persuaded the Jesuit group to found it to be an opportunity for the papal message to get out to a broader uh, public. Its editor was appointed by the Pope, and no article could be published throughout this period unless it was approved in advance by the Vatican Secretary of State Office. 
the journal was not read by the Catholic masses for it was pitched well above their heads, but it did offer Catholic opinion leaders, newspaper editors, the upper echelon clergy with a window into the Vatican's perspective on the issues of the day. In the last two decades of the 19th century, in the years modern anti-Semitism was taking shape, Civiltà Cattolica attacked the Jews mercilessly. Just give you a little flavor of this. The Jews, one of scores of such denunciations in the journal at the time warned, eternal insolent children, obstinate, dirty thieves, liars, ignoramuses, pests, and the scourge of those near and far, managed to lay their hands on all public wealth. And virtually alone, they took control not only of all money, but of the law itself in those countries where they have been allowed to hold public offices. The church had long uh, taught, said the, pronounced the journal, that Jews needed to be kept uh, separate from Christians, and otherwise the Jews would reduce Christians to their slaves. Quoting again, oh, how wrong and deluded are those who think that Judaism is just a religion and not, in fact, a race, a people, and a nation. As a noxious foreign body, the journal charged, Jews could never be loyal to the country in which they lived as they, they schemed to exploit the generosity of those who foolishly accorded them equal rights. The election of Achille Arati as Pope Pius XI in 1922 did nothing to stop Civiltà Cattolica's shrill demonization of Italy's Jews. Uh, here were the new pope at his uh, desk. In a series of articles in 1922, it blamed the Jews for the recent Russian Revolution and sounded the alarm against a Jewish conspiracy aimed at ruling the world. In late 1922, a few months after Pius XI became pope, and as the fascists were marching on Rome, the journal published a feature article titled The World Revolution and the Jews. It described a world in chaos with labor strikes and unrest orchestrated by secret forces whose goal was communist revolution. The credulous masses participating in the revolts were mere stooges driven by an occult power, one that showed the telltale signs of coming from the ghetto. The world's future, the article warned, would be determined by the battle then being waged in Russia. The leaders of the Bolshevik, Bolshevik reign of terror were not, quote, indigenous Russians, according to Civiltà Cattolica, but rather, quote, Jewish intruders who slyly masked their true identity behind Slavic-sounding pseudonyms. The uh, journal, the Vatican Supervised Journal, uh, explained that a list of 545 highest officials of the Russian regime revealed that true Russians numbered no more than 30 out of 545. Quote, those of the Jewish race comprise a full 447 the rest being a hodgepodge of other nationalities. In short, though Jews composed under 5% of the Russian population, quote, this tiny minority today has invaded all the avenues of power and imposes its dictatorship on the nation. Now the significance of this article and others like it is great because this argument would become one of the central tenets 
of the Nazis' own campaign to justify the need to do something about the Jews, namely the fact the Jews were behind the Russian Revolution and behind this worldwide communist conspiracy. It would be taken up by church publications throughout Italy. I won't spend the time today quoting from diocesan bulletins and uh, Catholic action bulletins and so on that pick up these arguments from Civiltà Cattolica, uh, the argument that the leaders of the Russian Revolution weren't real Russians but were Jews. Uh, there's been some research on this question. There may be others here who know more about this than I do. I'm not an expert on Russian history, but what I've read uh, suggests that of 417 members of the highest leadership body in the Soviet Union in the mid-1920s, only 6% came from Jewish backgrounds. And this figure dropped sharply in 1930s, not least because of the anti-Semitic uh, purges and trials of Stalin. In 1938, while Civiltà Cattolica and the Nazi government continued to warn that almost all the leaders of the Soviet Union were Jewish, a look at the membership of the nine-man Politburo, the highest government body, shows that only one of the nine was from a Jewish background. Of the 37 members of the Soviet Presidium, one came from a Jewish background. But let's return to 1922, a bit of a digression there. 1922 was a fateful year for Italy, as you can imagine, a year in which Mussolini comes to power through semi-legal means. In the first issue of Civiltà Cattolica to appear after Mussolini came to power in the fall of that year, the Jesuit journal carried news from Austria under the headline, Jewish Masonic Socialism Tyrannizes Austria. Here it adds a second crucial element to what would be the conspiracy theory that not only the journal, but as I will discuss in a moment, the Pope's two principal emissaries to Mussolini would try to convince the dictator of over the next years. Following the Great War, the journal reported, Vienna's 19 Masonic lodges had formed a Grand Lodge. Quote, all of its high functionaries without exception were Jews. Their goal was to rule the world, quote, under the domination of the Masons, themselves under the Jews' power, unquote. If the Jews in Vienna have their way, the journal warned, again, I quote, Vienna will be nothing but a Jewish city. Houses and belongings will all be theirs. The Jews will be the bosses and lords, the Christians, their servants. And then they conclude, Austria will be absolutely the subject, tributary, and slave of the Jews. This, in short, is the guiding idea of our socialist Jewish Masonic leaders. From 1922 to Mussolini's imposition of the anti-Semitic racial laws in the fall of 1938, the journal repeatedly called for European states to undo the damage they had done in the previous century by giving the Jews equal rights. It urged Europe's government, governments to impose new restrictive laws on the Jews or risk national ruin. Its themes were picked up by Catholic journals and diocesan bulletins throughout Italy. Now, I mentioned that the Pope's own emissaries to Mussolini were, in these years, trying to convince him of the danger posed by Italy's Jews. And this is one of the things we find by the newly opened archives in the Vatican. And not just in the Vatican, uh, Jesuit archives. There, there are other church archives that for this period have become available under the new policy. Far and away, the most important envoy Pius XI had to Mussolini was the Jesuit father, Pietro Tacchi Venturi. It's here. 
Shortly after Mussolini came to power, uh, actually by January of uh, 1923, uh, there was an agreement made between uh, essentially the Pope and Mussolini that they needed a secret emissary or semi-secret emissary uh, to be able to uh, guide their relationship with one another, and they chose uh, this uh, prominent Jesuit from Rome, Pietro Tacchiventuri. Over the next 16 years, the Jesuit met privately with Mussolini probably over 100 times. No one was more influential in peddling the theory of an evil Jewish conspiracy to the Italian dictator. In 1926, a dozen years before Mussolini would publicly identify Jews as a national threat and introduce the so-called racial laws, Taki Venturi was already using his frequent meetings to warn him of the danger posed by the Jews. In September of that year, 1926, for example, he gave the Duce a recently published 15-page pamphlet, Zionism and Catholicism, uh, it's actually, his first page shows it's dedicated to Taki Venturi. So Taki Venturi gives this to Mussolini. The booklet recalls how God condemned the Jews to wander the earth, cursed for, not for rejecting Jesus. But it then focused on the more immediate dangers that the Jews posed. The author wrote, no one can doubt the Jewish sect's formidable, diabolical, fatal activity in all the world. Unquote. The Jews, he warned, sought revolution, Bolshevism, and, quote, to destroy current society and dominate the world by themselves as their Talmud prescribes. Now, in trying to get Mussolini exercised about the Jewish threat, Taki Venturi was always care, uh, careful to identify the threat posed by the Jews as not only to the church, but to Mussolini and fascism. The Jews were not simply enemies of the Catholic Church. He would continuously tell Mussolini they were enemies of the fascist regime, too. In 1928, the Pope, through the Holy Office of the Inquisition, ordered the dissolution of the Catholic organization called Friends of Israel. Its sin was that in pursuing the Church-approved goal of trying to convert the Jews, it called on the Church to end its demonization of the Jews. Although the Pope, Pius XI, thought it important to put a stop to the organization and its activities, he worried that banning a church organization called Friends of Israel would uh, leave him open to the charge of anti-Semitism, which he wanted to avoid. And so he insisted that a passage be added to the, the decree that dissolved the organization, stating that the church was not anti-Semitic. But at the same time, he wanted to be sure that there was no uncertainty among the faithful as to what this action actually meant. And so he called in the, uh, by then, um, former head of Civiltà uh, Cattolica, it's around the uh, time Rosa stepped down, He'd been the longtime editor of Civiltà Cattolica, Enrico Rosa, uh, who had a close uh, relationship with the Pope. And over the years, the Pope would often call on him to uh, write certain things he wanted to get out to the world through uh, columns in Civiltà Cattolica. So he calls on Rosa to explain the rationale of the dissolution of the Friends of Israel in the journal. Rosa wrote in the resulting article titled, The Judaic Danger and the Friends of Israel, that the dissolution decree 
condemned anti-Semitism, quote, in its anti-Christian form and spirit, unquote. But, he quickly added, the church had to protect itself, quote, with equal diligence from the other, no less dangerous extreme, unquote. He explained, in the painful struggle against the Jewish danger, Civiltà Cattolica had, quote, always taken care to balance charity and justice, avoiding and explicitly combating the excesses of anti-Semitism, which have now been newly condemned by that phrase uh, added that I referred to. But he said, Catholics could not ignore the great peril that the Jews posed. Ever since the Jews in the 19th century had been given equal rights to the Christians, something the church, of course, had opposed, they had become, quote, bold and powerful, making them under the pretext of equality ever more predominant and privileged, especially in the economic sphere. Rosa then went on to blame the Jews both for the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution, and warned that in the face of Jewish subversion, Europe's governments were being inexplicably lax. As a result, Jews had established their, quote, hegemony in many sectors of public life, especially in the economy and industry, as well as in high finance, where they are indeed said to have dictatorial power. He continued, the Jews can dictate laws to states and governments in political as well as in financial matters without fear of having any rivals. And he concluded by saying that throughout Europe, Jews were at work, quote, scheming to achieve their world hegemony, unquote. Now, a few years later, Hitler comes to power. And of course, loses no time introducing his own measures against the Jews. The papal nuncio in Berlin reported the details of the new anti-Semitic campaign back to the Vatican. A boycott had been called of all Jewish-owned stores and businesses, as well as of all uh, Jewish doctors, lawyers, other professionals. On April 7, 1933, so this is within weeks, really, of uh, Hitler coming to power, a law was passed dismissing Jews from the civil service in Germany. In reporting all this, the nuncio cautioned the pope not to interfere. Quote, he wrote, intervention by the Holy See's representative would be equivalent to a protest against the government. In this case, the pope followed his nuncio's advice and remained silent. Strikingly, and this is one of the things that's come up in these archives that I found really kind of amazing. I'm not sure if others will. But it turns out that one of the first people, and perhaps only uh, people with Hitler's ear, to warn him not to go ahead with an anti-Semitic campaign in Germany was Benito Mussolini. God, there's Mussolini again. On March, March 30th, 1933, Mussolini, again, so March 30th, Hitler only comes to power two months earlier, a few weeks earlier. Mussolini sent a confidential note to his ambassador in Berlin instructing him to meet with Hitler immediately. That is, the Italian ambassador to Germany was to immediately, urgently meet with Hitler and to advise Hitler that his anti-Semitic campaign was a mistake. The campaign said Mussolini, quote, will increase moral pressure and economic reprisals on the part of international Judaism, unquote. 
Now, he wanted to be sure he didn't want Hitler to take offense, even though the whole story of his relationship with Hitler is another one which, at this period, he had his own doubts about Hitler. But he didn't want to seem to be uh, intruding or offensive, so he added his Mussolini to Hitler, every regime has not only the right but the duty to eliminate from positions of influence those elements that are not completely trustworthy. But he goes on to say, but doing this on the basis of Semitic versus Aryan race can be damaging. This is Mussolini to Hitler. And he added another warning. There wouldn't be just the Jews who might turn against him if this were the case, Jews worldwide, uh, but Christians as well. The next day, the Italian ambassador met with the Fuhrer to pass on the, the Duce's advice. And one of the things uh, we discovered through these recently opened archives is the Pope was kept apprised of this. A note in the Vatican Secretary of State files reports that Mussolini's plea to Hitler, quote, it's now from the, Mussol from the Vatican account, was taken and read to Hitler and Goebbels a half hour before the minister's meeting that approved the law that dismisses the state employees of Semitic race. So Mussolini warns him, sends an urgent warning, but it's rebuffed. Another irony, I won't get into this today, but um, as some of you may know, this came out shortly after the archives were open, that uh, the most significant person to call on the Pope to excommunicate Hitler was Benito Mussolini. That's, again, another story. Um, that was um, somewhat later. This is after he got burned in Austria. No one close to the Pope was more eager to spread the word of the Jews' pernicious influence than the superior general of the Jesuit order, Vladimir Ladochowski, from a Polish uh, noble family. Ladochowski could also be relied on by Mussolini to stamp out any Jesuit criticism of the fascist regime. Uh, for example, in January 1936, in the midst of the fascist, uh, the Italian invasion of Ethiopia, Mussolini was angered by a critical piece he read in the American Jesuit uh, magazine called America. He sent his ambassador to the Vatican to speak to Ledahowski, the world head of the Jesuit order, the ambassador relayed Mussolini's request that he dismiss the Jesuit editor, American Jesuit editor, and replace him with someone more kindly disposed toward fascism. The Jesuit general eagerly complied. He fired the American Jesuit editor, who had been editor for several years, and installed a pro-fascist editor in his place, who at the same time, um, incidentally reversed the magazine's former critical stance toward the radio firebrand Charles Coughlin. Um, a few months ago, the same Catholic magazine in America published a book review I wrote of a book on someone else had written on Pius XII, so things have changed and uh, that editor is no longer around, but it's uh, you know, reading these documents in the fascist archives really were it's kind of chilling. At the same time, the Italian ambassador uh, in this, this meeting where he asked for the head of the uh, Jesuit American Journal, he asked for help from the Jesuit order for fighting the economic sanctions that the League of Nations had imposed in an effort to stop Italy's war in Ethiopia. Now, the League of Nations voted fairly serious sanctions. Mussolini was quite concerned about them. He was particularly concerned that they might spread to the United States, which was, of course, not part of the League of Nations. 
The ambassador reported back to Mussolini on the Jesuit leader's response. Quote, Father Ledochowski said that all of the noise being made around the war in Abyssinia is just a pretext from which international Judaism is profiting in order to advance its attack on Western civilization. At the same time, the Pope, partly at the Jesuit general's insistence, was preparing an encyclical to condemn communism. In a handwritten letter in July 1936, Ledochowski urged the Pope to issue a worldwide warning about, quote, the terrible danger that grows more menacing each day. He told the Pope that because the Jews were behind communism, that because the Jews also controlled the world press, people were not being made aware of this. Therefore, it was up to the Pope in his encyclical to make clear that the communist scourge the world was facing was entirely the product of the Jews. Over the following months, as the Pope prepared his encyclical, he sent the Jesuit uh, leader drafts of it for his comments and suggestions. Ledochowski, unhappy that these said nothing about the Jews, kept pushing the Pope to add language linking them to the communist danger. He writes, in, in writing one of his responses to the Pope, to one of the uh, drafts the Pope sent him, quote, it seems necessary to us in such an encyclical to at least make an allusion to the Jewish influence, being certain that not only were the intellectual authors of communism all Jews, but also that the communist movement in Russia was staged by Jews. And now too, the Jesuit general continues in this note to the Pope, although not always openly in every region, if you look more deeply into it, it is the Jews who are the primary champions and promoters of communist propaganda. Yet by this time, 1936, the Pope was becoming increasingly uncomfortable with the strident anti-Semitism all around him in the Vatican. Next to the line in Ledochowski's letters about the Jews being responsible for communism in Russia, the Pope writes one word, verificare, verify. And when he uh, releases the encyclical, which got a lot of attention, uh, Divini Redemptoris, uh, condemning communism, much to Ledochowski's disappointment, no mention is made of Jews in it. Later that year, so we're in 1936 now, Civiltà Cattolica renewed its warning against the threat that the Jews posed in Europe. In considering the appropriate Christian response, it discussed three possibilities, said so there are three possibilities. Best, of course, it said, would be to convert all the Jews to Christianity. But clearly, they concluded this wasn't going to happen because the Jews were stubbornly sticking to their ancestral faith. The second possibility was to relocate all of Europe's Jews to Palestine. Uh, but there the problem was, the Civiltà uh, Cattolica explains both that 16 million Jews wouldn't fit, couldn't be supported in Palestine, and secondly, that the Jews would never do the necessary work to develop the land because they were, quote, uniquely endowed with the faculty of being parasites, and destroyers have no aptitude and no taste for manual labor. So this left only the uh, third option, the approach that the church had used so successfully for centuries, Jews should be stripped of their rights as citizens. 
This is what Chivaltaka Catolica calls for in late 1936, stripping the Jews of their rights as citizens. In July 1938, about a year and a half after this article appeared, Mussolini surprised many by announcing a new racial policy in what was uh, called, strangely, the Manifesto of Racial Scientists. And you see it here. And uh, as you see, if you look at um, oh, the first point, le razze umane esistono, all the human races exist. Um, point nine, gli ebrei non appartengono alla razza italiana. Uh, Jews don't belong to the Italian race. To understand, and not only do they not belong, but they are a threat to the healthy Christian Italian race. To understand Pius XI's reaction to Mussolini's announcement of the racial policy, it's important to know that the Pope, Pope Pius XI, detested Hitler and had been upset by Mussolini's increasing embrace of the Nazi leader. That was really beginning in 1935-36 with the Ethiopian War and then with the uh, Spanish Civil War beginning in the summer of 36. The Pope was angered by Hitler's efforts to whittle away the influence of the Catholic Church in Germany. He also viewed Nazi racial theory as in conflict with Catholic teachings, which viewed religion, not race, as a crucial determinant between good and evil. Mussolini's announcement of a racial campaign that sounded strikingly similar to Hitler's was destined to upset the Pope. And Pius XI, known both for his authoritarianism but also for his temper, which is, was quite dramatic at times, had never been one to hold his tongue when he thought that basic church principles were at stake. In an audience a few days after announcement of Italy's new racial policy, the Pope denounced what he called, quote, exaggerated nationalism. He said there's only one great universal Catholic human race, and then he added, in a phrase that would drive uh, Mussolini crazy, one can ask how it is that Italy, unfortunately, felt the need to go and imitate Germany. Now, there's nothing Mussolini uh, hated more than be called you know, a follower of Hitler. He, of course, saw things the, the other way around. Um, this is the visit Hitler pays to Italy, uh, Rome, Naples, and Florence in, in May 1938, just a couple of months before the announcement of the, um, the new racial policy in Italy. So the Pope had kind of laid down this uh, scolding of Mussolini and his new racial uh, policy. This is before the racial law. The racial laws will be announced beginning essentially early September. So there's this period where the new racial policy has been announced, but Jews are anxiously waiting to know, you know, is this just going to be theory or is this going to be put into practice in some way? Mussolini ordered that no Italian paper published the, the Pope's speech. He had his foreign minister, Galeazzo Cianno, who was also his son-in-law, um, Italian, or the American press wrote, the son-in-law also rises, um, but... <laughs> And he, uh, so Mussolini has his son-in-law, has Chano, summon the papal nuncio and warn him that if the Pope would continue these attacks, he would provoke a major conflict. Here's uh, Chano, and here's the nuncio, uh, Borgen, it should be Borgangini, 
as the uh, nuncio since 1929, the Lateran Pacts were, were signed. There was an exchange of ambassadors and uh, Borgangini was sent to be the uh, Pope's emissary, the Vatican's emissary, the nuncio to the Mussolini government. So in reporting this conversation back, this warning that Chano on Mussolini's behalf delivers to Borgangini, the nuncio, he says, Chano says, I spoke very clearly to Borgangini I explained the promises and the aims of our racism. Chano was pleased by the uh, nuncio's response. Quote, and this again is uh, Chano, the son-in-law foreign minister speaking. Speaking of Borgangini, the nuncio, he appeared to me to be very convinced. And he added, quote, he revealed himself to be very anti-Semitic. When the nuncio, this uh, Borgangini, subsequently met with his Italian counterpart, that is Mussolini's, the Italian ambassador to the Vatican, who I think I have a picture of here, Bonifacio uh, Pignatti. He did, the nuncio did all he could to placate him. The Pope, he said, was only referring to religious matters in criticizing the new racial policy, eager that Italian racism remain within proper Christian bounds. As for the Jews, he explained, what upset the Pope was that Germany's anti-Semitic measures had been extended to Catholics who had once been Jews. So this is how the papal nuncio explains to uh, the Italian government what the Pope's opposition is. So one of the stories here, I'm just gonna be giving you a little bit of a um, hint of today that I deal with in my book, is how the people around the Pope, as, as the Pope grew increasingly uh, more apt to lash out at Mussolini and his racial policy, uh, did all they could to prevent him from going public with his complaints. Now Mussolini was very worried about the damage the Pope could do to his anti-Semitic campaign, which he was planning but hadn't yet announced. He knew that it would come as a surprise to most Italians. It was crucial that the campaign have broad popular support. His ambassador, trying to help him, this fellow here, Pignatti, thought he knew the person who might be able to intercede with the Pope on Mussolini's behalf. And so he went to see Father Ledochowski, the general, Polish general of the Jesuit order. He wrote, Pignatti, the amb Italian ambassador writes, I went to see the general of the Jesuits because in the past he did not hide from me his implacable loathing for the Jews whom he believes are the origin of all the ills that afflict Europe. The ambassador could not have found Ledochowski more sympathetic to his cause. The Pope's outbursts lamented the Jesuit head, and there were, there were some others. I just told you the most notable at this point. The Pope's outbursts, the Jesuit head said, were the products of mental weakness brought on by old age. He said the Pope, quote, does not reason and does not want to hear reason. And Ledochowski added that Cardinal Eugenio Pacelli, who was his number two, the Secretary of State, beginning in early 1930, and of course would uh, succeed Pius XI and become Pius XII on Pius XI's death in early 1939. Ledochowski says that Pacelli was also at wit's end. They were commiserating with each other about how the Pope had gotten out of control. That's Pacelli. 
Together with Taki Venturi and others close to the Pope, they had been doing everything they could to keep him from speaking out against the fascist government and its racial campaign. Ledahowski tells Pignatti, the Italian ambassador, the Pope no longer listens to him, he's talking about um, Pacelli, he's no longer listening to his Secretary of State's Council of Prudence here, as he once did. He carefully hides, he's talking about the Pope, he carefully hides his plans from him, from Pacelli, and does not tell Pacelli of the speeches he will give. Those around the Pope, said Ledahowski, were terrified by what would happen if his condition deteriorated further, as they saw it. He urged the Italian ambassador not to let the Pope's rants compromise the church's good relations with the fascist regime. Meanwhile, not only Civiltà Cattolica, but the Vatican's daily newspaper, this is, I think, very significant, Lo Sovratore Romano, the daily newspaper of the Vatican, was reacting to the new Italian anti-Semitic campaign by reminding their readers of the fact that the church had, for centuries, called on governments to take repressive measures against the Jews to protect Christian society. In an August 14th article, again, the timing here is crucial, the uh, manifesto of racial scientists is mid-July. The first significant laws, anti-Semitic laws, will be rolled out in the beginning of September. So August 14th article, the Vatican Daily recalled uh, these restrictive laws that in an effort to protect Christians, the popes had long uh, championed. And in a passage that would be quickly picked up in newspapers throughout Italy, the Vatican Daily explained that while the popes had always shown compassion in dealing with their Jews, this should not be understood, they said. And let me give you a quote, which is then picked up by all the fascist newspapers in Italy. But to put things straight, this does not mean that, is, that the popes had compassion for Jews. But to put things straight, this does not mean that the Jews might abuse the hospitality of Christian countries. Along with protective measures, there were decrees of restriction and persecution in their regard. The civil ruler was in agreement with the church in this. While the Christians were forbidden to force the Jews to embrace the Catholic religion, to disturb their synagogues, their Sabbaths, and their feast days, Jews, on the other hand, were forbidden to hold any public office, civil or military, and this debarment was extended to the sons of converted Jews. These precautions related to professional activities, teaching, and even trade. That's the end of the quote. Basically, what the Vatican Daily newspaper did was offer the blueprint of the racial laws that are about to be announced two weeks later, when all Jewish children would be thrown out of public schools, all Jewish teachers in those schools fired, all university professors, Jewish university professors fired, Jews kicked out of all professional societies, uh, kicked out of the civil service, kicked out of the military. I have a, uh, one of the things that happens in early August uh, 1938 is they, uh, Mussolini decides he needs some way of uh, spreading the word about the, anti the need for anti-Semitic campaign and founds this uh, colorful uh, journal called La Difesa della Razza, Defense of the Race, and, uh, which will come out every two weeks until his regime falls in... Uh, the summer of 1943. Anyway, here you see kind of graphic depiction of these racial laws. That same month, August 1938, 
As Mussolini was formulating these racial laws, the Pope sent Taki Venturi to negotiate a deal with him. The Jesuits shuttled back and forth between Mussolini and the Pope until they reached an agreement. And this is actually a, uh, the first page of the agreement with a little bit of the second page because the agreement has three points so I'll talk about it in a moment. As you see there, the title of this is Three Points of an Agreement Happily Reached the Evening of August 16, 1938 between His Excellency the Honorable Mussolini and Father Taki Venturi, S.I., in order to restore good harmony between the Holy See and the Italian government that was disturbed in recent weeks. The points of disagreement cited in the title focused on two issues. First of all, on the racial campaign, whether the racial campaign would embrace Nazi racial theories deemed heretical by the Pope. But secondly, they uh, dealt with another problem the Pope was very concerned with, namely pressure on the mass uh, uh, organization called Catholic Action, mass membership organization. The Pope, Pius XI, had long seen Catholic Action as central to the church's mission. It was organized down to the parish level in male and female youth and adult uh, uh, groups, and it was key, uh, key use of the laity to help Christianize Italian society from the Pope's point of view. Of course, it, it also had international um, manifestations as well. But in Italy, it had been a constant irritation to Mussolini, who could never be comfortable with any popular membership organization that was not under his control. And periodically, the Duce had accused the organization of involving itself in politics and threatened to shut it down. In fact, had briefly in 1931, and one of these threats uh, actually shut down the Catholic Action Youth Organizations till uh, Taki Venturi was able to negotiate a, a deal like this. Over the previous month, as he began to be more worried about the Pope opposing his uh, racial campaign, while he so desperately needed the church's support for it, he began to apply pressure on Catholic action because he knew this was the way to really get to the Pope. He had his envoys uh, inform the Vatican that he thought Catholic action groups were engaging in politics and that he might have to close them down again. So it's in this context that this kind of amazing document uh, was prepared. In exchange for Mussolini's promise to allow Catholic action to function freely in Italy, and that's what points two and three, which I'm not showing here, deal with, the Pope would pledge not to criticize the racial laws and the upcoming anti-Semitic campaign. The latter point was recorded in point one of the agreement, titled The Problem, as you see here, Problema di Razzismo, um, and there it reads, it is the government's intention that this problem be calmly defined in a scientific and political office free from the influence of outsiders, employing only the honest criteria of discrimination that the state believes to be its right to establish and enforce. For his part, Mussolini promised that the new anti-Jewish laws would not be any harsher than those that the Pope had imposed in the lands he controlled, which in Rome was till 1870, the end of uh, the Papal States, the last vestige of the Papal States in the fall of the, uh, the walls of the ghetto in Rome. 
In fact, the agreement says some of the restrictions imposed by the popes would specifically be excluded. It reads, as for the Jews, the distinctive caps of whatever color will not be brought back, nor the ghettos, much less will their belongings be confiscated. The Jews, in a word, can be sure they will not be subjected to treatment worse than that which was accorded them for centuries and centuries by the popes who hosted them in the eternal city and in the lands of their temporal domain." Unquote. In exchange for Mussolini's promise to remain within the bounds of church-supported restrictions on the Jews, the Holy See was to agree in advance not to criticize the upcoming anti-Semitic laws as the third and final paragraph of the section specifies. So, quote, having said that, that the <coughs> restrictions wouldn't be worse than those that the popes had Im imposed, it is the strong wish of the honorable head of the government that the Catholic press, the preachers, Catholic speakers and the like abstain from discussing this topic in public. The Holy See and the Holy Pontiff himself do not lack the means to come to an understanding directly with Mussolini via private means and to offer him those observations believed to be opportune for the best solution of the delicate problem. The same day this document was uh, signed, Dino uh, Alfieri, who's then the uh, Minister of Popular Culture, who's in charge of censorship in the press, <clears throat> called in all the correspondents, all the Italian correspondents and heads of, the, of newspapers in, in Rome and told them to tone down the polemics against the Vatican because, quote, it looks like everything is being taken care of, unquote. Meanwhile, Italy's newspapers were filled with articles detailing how when the popes had temporal power, they themselves discriminated against the Jews. On August 17th, several newspapers ran articles under the title, quote, How the Popes Treated the Jews. And in all of them, they cite the Osservatore Romano, the Vatican Daily Newspaper story on the subject that had just appeared three days earlier. Over the next months, the Pope's entourage, have a little montage here, including Secretary of State Eugenio Pacelli, along with the papal nuncio to Italy, Borgangini, and the world head of the Jesuit order, Lerachowski, as well as the Pope's own personal envoy to Mussolini, Taki Venturi, did all they could to be sure the Pope abided by the agreement. Their efforts, as it turned out, would be placed in danger by the fact that Mussolini himself would not abide by the agreement. He insisted that the anti-Semitic laws be extended to prevent the marriage of Catholics who had been born Jews, in other words, Jewish converts to Catholicism, and that with other Catholics. Okay, so this uh, battle over the merits, this one clause in what was a long list of uh, restrictions on the Jews is what caught the Vatican's and the Pope's attention, and in fact got the Vatican, uh, got the Pope extremely angry. Uh, the problem was that in forbidding marriage between a Jewish convert to Catholicism and somebody born Catholic, uh, first of all, of course, this went directly against church doctrine, that a convert, somebody who was uh, sincerely converted, should be treated as a Catholic, but also went against the Concordat, the part of the Lateran Treaty uh, in 1929 that had been signed with Mussolini and the Vatican, which accorded to the church the right to, uh, give, to determine what marriages would be legitimate. In other words, any 
marriage performed by the church should be automatically registered by the civil authorities in Italy. This is in the Concordat in 1929. Clearly, this racial law went directly against that. Yet, even through these tense days when the Pope was irate over this trampling of the Concordat, the men around him did all they could to patch up relations and prevent him from speaking out publicly against the racial laws. Again, I discuss this in detail in my book. It'll be out in a few months. Pius XI died the following February. Uh, in fact, his death was rather dramatically timed, too. Uh, he died on February 10th, 1939. February 11th, 1939 was to be the 10th anniversary of the signing of the Lateran Treaty. And he had uh, called on all the bishops of Italy, of whom there were about 300, to come to St. Peter's for what would be a dramatic uh, speech he intended to give. I, we know from the uh, fascist archives and Mussolini's correspondence that Mussolini was convinced that the Pope was going to denounce him, the racial laws, and fascism, along with Hitler, uh, at that, on that dramatic occasion and was extremely worried about it. Uh, now, the Pope dies the day before. So the, the uh, bishops had already come to Rome getting ready for this big uh, series of events that weekend, uh, which was going to be on a Saturday and a Sunday. Uh, so Friday morning, the Pope dies. This, of course, Italians are um, big on conspiracy theories and probably don't have to be that big on conspiracy theories to you know, fantasize about this coincidence of timing. Um, as far as I know, there's absolutely no evidence for any hanky-panky here, but... Um, you still hear uh, conspiracy theories that are kind of interesting in some ways, not least because they involve the um, mistress, the newer now mistress of Mussolini. However, I will leave you with that, uh, <laughs> that thought. The, um, now, what happens? So the, the, pope, the pope dies. The pope has, in fact, he's so concerned to get his message to the bishops that he asked the Vatican printing office to print up co uh, copy for each bishop to hand them at the ceremony. Mussolini has heard about this speech, as I mentioned. He's convinced it denounces him and so on. He sends word to Eugenio Pacelli, who in this interregnum, interpapal period, is the, uh, the uh, chamberlain and therefore in charge of the pope's effects, gets word to him that um, this speech should not see the light of day. Eugenio Pacelli then gets in touch with the Vatican printing office, orders all copies of the uh, speech destroyed, takes the original from the Pope's death, desk, along, by the way, with the famous uh, original of the, the famous or infamous uh, hidden encyclical that was to denounce uh, racism. And neither of these would see the light of day until some decades after uh, the death of Pius XII in 1958. Three weeks after the death of uh, Pope Ratti, Pius XI, Eugenio Pacelli becomes Pope, takes the name uh, Pius XII. Uh, no criticism of the racial law would escape his lips. Thank you. Mm. Yeah, I'm happy to take questions. So, uh, we agreed to entertain questions. Um, I only ask that 
uh, I'd be able to hand the microphone to you as you ask your question. Thank you. Uh, you know, I've studied Franciscan anti-Semitism of the 15th century, and the, they, they say exactly the same things. But they also quote uh, canon law. By uh, 19, by this period, were all the anti-Semitic uh, tenets of canon law out? Uh, do you know? I know there was a major new revision code that came no. out earlier in the in the century. Right. I mean, the revision of the canon code actually had been uh, spearheaded by Pietro Gaspari, who was the Secretary of State of uh, Pius XI in his first uh, eight years in papacy. But um, no, I mean, for example, the, the uh, I don't know what, you know, all the aspects of canon law you mentioned, but certainly the, some of the traditional anti-Semitic aspects of liturgy, for example, are, are still there. Absolutely. In fact, the, uh, what got uh, folks at the Holy Office of the Inquisition so most concerned at the uh, Friends of Israel, why it needed to be dissolved, was they were calling for ending the use in the uh, Easter liturgy of the perfidious Jews and so forth. So, and, and I wasn't clear, uh, it wasn't clear to me, in his not, uh, February, uh, intended February 11th speech, mm -hmm. did the Pope actually denounce <laughs> uh, Mussolini? Or we have to wait for your book to find No, out. actually it's uh, somebody else has, has published that text, uh, Emma Fattorini, who's a um, historian of the church at uh, Sapienza, University of Rome, uh, recently published it. It's, it's a bit of a, it was like, you know, if any of you read the book, The Hidden Encyclical, about the encyclical that the Pope commissioned to denounce uh, anti-Semitism and racism. If you then read the text of, the, of what got, um, what apparently was on the Pope's desk, uh, it's a bit of a disappointment because it contains a lot of what we today regard as anti-Semitic uh, stereotypes as well. Um, in the case of the speech, it's not a dramatic denunciation. On the other hand, he does, uh, he talks about the fascist spies. He tells the bishops, do not talk on the telephone because the fascist spies will uh, record it. And uh, in this, but it's not a wholesale denunciation. And he makes a negative remark about uh, you know, Nazi pagan ideology. Uh, so it's a speech that he would have found uncomfortable, but not the fully denunciatory speech that uh, Mussolini was worried about. Um, if memory serves me right, um, Pacelli, when he was Secretary of State under Pius the Eleventh, uh, negotiated uh, the, the agreement accepting Hitler and also, uh, mm -hmm. the, of course, the Lateran Pact. Um, what, what in your research have you you learned about the tension between those two, or, or the agreement between those two, in, in course of developing those two uh, agreements? Well. Um the, the, two, the Lateran Pacts are, are signed initially on February 11, 1929. This is before uh, Pacelli is called back from Berlin, where he's the nuncio, the papal nuncio to uh, Germany. And so he was not, uh, although I, I have read various things where they make reference to his role in the, uh, negotiating the Lateran Pacts, he was not involved in negotiating the Lateran Pacts. On the other hand, he was the crucial negotiator uh, with the representatives of the Nazi government uh, within weeks, really, of it coming to power. So it, this is signed initially, I believe, in, in July of 1933, just you know, months after he comes to power, one of the first international agreements made by the Nazi regime. A lot's been written about this. As you know, it is very controversial. Um, there was the John Cornwell book about Hitler's pope and so forth. Um, but Celli, at least in my view, he's certainly not Hitler's pope. Uh, 
Um, but he was someone who, whose interest was always in protecting the institutional church as he saw it. So he's worried about the church in Germany uh, and what would happen. For example, in, uh, when Hitler came to power in the region around Munich in Bavaria, two-thirds of uh, school children were going to Catholic parochial schools. By the late 30s, something like 2% were. So for the Pope and also Pacelli, there was a lot to be concerned about, you know, even aside from ideology per se, uh, in terms of the influence of the, the church in Germany. Um, so I think Pacelli was, thought what he was doing was protecting the institutional church. I don't think he, in my own reading, that the a larger kind of ethical moral obligation of the, the off, uh, this office, much less the office of Pope, was what weighed most heavily on him. I'm wondering if you found evidence in your work of uh, other responses from Catholic organizations, political organizations, people who were more at the ground level uh, and in terms of their knowledge and response to uh, these laws and also the compliance, if, any, if there was any evidence of compliance or not compliance with the anti-Semitic laws. Yes, well, of course, you know, 99% of uh, Italians, or at least nominally Catholics, so there's not much difference between Italians' reaction and Catholics, if we're using in that sense, uh, reaction to the racial laws. Uh, here, one of the interesting documents we have available are in the fascist archives, uh, the Ministry of Internal Affairs, the police archives, because they had spies throughout Italy, and they'd be sending these reports. So when the racial laws are announced, you have reports about how people are reacting. And uh, what's interesting is in the... Um, in some of the cities which have significant Jewish populations, there is evidence of people not being that happy. It also tied into some of the notion of the corruption of the fascist state because what they saw were various fascist bigwigs, let's say in Turin, uh, buying up at 5% of their value factories of Jewish factory owners and you know, this kind of thing. And this attracted a lot of negative attention. On the other hand, uh, a lot's been written recently in Italy about how the university professors reacted to the fact that all their Jewish colleagues were fired overnight. And the fact is there was virtually no protest at all. They eagerly took up their positions and in fact refused to give them up after the war to the people whose positions they had you know, stolen, basically. So it's, it's, not, uh, it's not a very pretty story. I'd, I'd say and the Jews for, there were major parts of Italy that had virtually no Jews in them. Virtually all, you know, the Jews had been kicked out of the uh, kingdom of um, Naples, as, which was under Spanish influence back around 1500. And so, you know, south of Rome, there were almost no Jews at all. So many Italians had grown up without ever, you know, seeing a Jew or meeting a Jew. So for them, it really wasn't an issue. I, I suspect that those who did attend church, though, heard the um, demonization of the Jews because the kind of language I was quoting from Civiltà Cattolica when I was reading diocesan bulletins and, as I mentioned, bulletins of, or magazines of Catholic action youth and so on, they were repeating the same language. So it's hard for me to believe. And there, uh, similarly, there's a L'Amico del Clero, a um, publication for the 20,000 priests in Italy, which was written at a, their level, uh, was filled with this kind of anti-Semitic demonization. So I've got to believe they... Um, use some of this in their sermons and so forth. So for many Italians, they didn't know Jews. It was all kind of an abstraction. What little they knew, perhaps they learned from the church, was to uh, perhaps lead them to believe this wasn't such a bad thing. 
thank you very much. I wonder whether you could speculate in a kind of comparative mode about the response that you've so uh, excellently uh, outlined today of the uh, Vatican to all this, uh, w compared to the Deutsche Christen and the general uh, Protestant anti-Semitism and uh, uh, collaborations with uh, Nazism in the German world. I mean, that takes you uh, beyond the purview of your lecture, mm -hmm. but I wonder what, what would it have, especially on that question of race versus religious prejudice and the uh, interaction and, and uh, interfusion of the two, mm -hmm. is that as likely to be found in, uh, among those uh, uh, Protestants in the German world as among the Italians in, in, in the Catholic world? Well, one of the things that, uh, that I found is that the whole distinction between you know, race and uh, religion is largely post-World War II. I mean, if you read the documents from this period, as you may have heard even in some of the quotes I used, um, the talk about the Jews as a race, as a religion, interchangeably. So I think if you talk about most people, now there are you know, certain kind of academics who might debate the distinction, uh, but for most people, I think they use the term interchangeably. And um, so I, I, you know, there are other people here much uh, more expert in, in Nazi Germany than I am. Um, it did strike me, though, if you look at the anti-Semitic uh, stereotypes in Der Sturmer, I mean, even the ritual murder accusation of what could be more medieval, kind of Christian anti-Semitic uh, belief and so forth than uh, Jews murdered Christian children to squeeze out their blood for their uh, Passover matzah, well, the, you know, Der Sturmer has a special issue on, on ritual murder. And just like the, uh, the main uh, anti-Semitic journal of uh, Mussolini, La Difesa della Razza, is filled with Catholic images of saints and so forth and uh, previous church uh, documents that denounce the Jews and so on. So um, I suspect that there's, you know, obviously there are significant differences, not least, I mean, Italy is all Catholic. Two-thirds of Germans are Protestants, which also puts, of course, the church institutionally, a very Catholic church in a different situation in Germany than it is in Italy. Uh, and one of the Pope's greatest fears, in fact, uh, early on in Nazism, if you read some of the correspondence in 33-34, is that Hitler is going to try to meld the Catholic Church and Protestant churches in one kind of nationalist Nazi church. Uh, hi. Uh, my question might be too naive, but what, uh, in your opinion, are the factors that, under, uh, that happened with Mussolini, going from his p views of 1922, where you're saying he had no particular acts against the Jews, to the uh, racial Nazi-like laws of 1938? Mm -hmm. What changed in Mussolini? Yeah, this is a big debate among uh, historians. Um, there's, you know, for example, a book that came out a few years ago called Mussolini Razzista, Mussolini the Racist, and tries to make the argument that he was always anti-Semitic, always racist, and so nothing really that much changed. I think most historians disagree with that. I would. Now, I think Mussolini shared some of the anti-Semitic stereotypes that were prevalent as he grew up. Of course, he grew up in this uh, left-wing anarchist socialist milieu. He himself, as a youth, uh, was a revolutionary socialist and denounced the Catholic Church and so forth and priests. Uh, 
Um, so, you know, if we're kind of looking at, at his history, that's where he's coming from. Um, well, one, one uh, theory or one account is that he basically wanted to, that, that Hitler said a kind of condition for our alliance. Remember, he was there just a couple months before the announcement in Rome. Hitler was in Rome before the racial policy was announced. That Hitler somehow told Mussolini, look, you've got to get aboard uh, if you're going to be my, uh, my ally. Uh, I think this, this didn't happen. I, what I do think happened is part of what happened was that Mussolini wanted to please Hitler at this point and thought nothing might please him so much as to copy him in these anti-Semitic laws and announce a racial campaign. Um, but you know, I do think that his, he came to, to feel that there was a Jewish conspiracy against him. Uh, a number of the um, uh, kind of leading anti-fascists, I mean, there weren't that many, and they were in exile, uh, but at least a few of them were Jewish, and much was made of this, not least by uh, Taki Venturi and Borgangini and others uh, around the Pope in talking to Mussolini. And I, the experience of 35, 36, the isolation, uh, the Ethiopian War, was, I think, another part of this. So. I think there are there multiple things. The, the single greatest factor, I think, was his trying to win uh, Hitler's approval. But I do think his own views of the Jews had been undermined over the uh, years before by a variety of factors, including the ones I tried to discuss today.